Internet. I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And this is another exciting mini episode of Radio Versus the Martians. And there's one story that I am honestly shocked that I forgot to relate to the panel. It does tie into Dungeons and Dragons, and it is perhaps the nerdiest thing that's ever happened to me. And I haven't heard it. So it doesn't even feel real to me. I <laughs> almost have to tell you this story to make it feel real because it feels like something out of a dream. Okay, go ahead. Three or four years ago, I was at Emerald City Comic Con. This is back when it was held at the Seahawks Stadium, way before it got as big as it is now mm. at the convention center. Mm -hmm. And I went up to get some comics signed by Ed Brubaker, who's the guy who writes a comic book called Criminal. At the time, he was writing Captain America and a lot of Marvel books. He's a great crime writer. So he's signing my Captain America books. Suddenly, Will Wheaton walks up. Will Wheaton of Star Trek The Next Generation. The Will Wheaton. The Will Wheaton. <laughs> I mean, I recognize him immediately. It's sort of this surreal moment. Will Wheaton walks up, and in front of me, he and Ed Brubaker negotiate a time to get together to play Dungeons & Dragons. <laughs> That's amazing. It didn't feel quite real, and I just kind of wanted to stand there and bask in the moment. I wasn't going to go and be presumptuous enough to invite myself to this party. I know I'm not <laughs> right. going to be allowed, right? <laughs> but the fact that it happened at all, that makes me so fucking happy. That's incredible. I think every single time that I've been to an Emerald City Comic Con or a PAX, actually both at the same place, Will Wheaton has been there. So let's get into some actual listener feedback. Yes, this one comes from Kieran Gamperl. Pardon us if I butcher your name. And Kieran says, Hi, I recently listened to your most recent episode about D&D. Even though I didn't grow up playing it like you guys did, bar playing a few CRPGs based on it like Neverwinter Nights and arguably Knights of the Old Republic. Good point. I enjoyed the discussion and it helped my day at work fly by. A mate of mine has been talking about getting a game together and listening to the podcast has inspired me to do my best to make that happen. What edition of the rules would you suggest for a bunch of newbies, by the way? Anyway, I just wanted to tell you I really enjoyed the show and that you've gained a new fan down here in New Zealand. Look forward to listening to more and working through the backlog. Well, they want to know what edition to play. Well, you'll have to help me out here because the last time I played was AD&D 2nd Edition, which is a, kind of a bit of a bear for the rules. At least about 15 years ago. So right. here's the thing I would say, Kieran. A lot of this stuff is actually out of print. Dungeons & Dragons is going through a change right now. They're going to create what they call D&D &D Next, Next. Yeah. which is essentially Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition. I'd say play whatever version you want. Pick up a handbook, and if it doesn't look intimidating, if not too intimidating, give it a try. I think a lot of fandom of D&D &D and the memories of D&D &D is a bit like Doctor Who, which is that you have a fondness for what it was mm -hmm. when you first started playing. Mm -hmm. And I started playing this in the mid to late 90s. That would have been second edition, the same game you last played. Right. So I have a certain fondness for that. I do like the changes that they made in later editions. I think the idea of armor class rather than the more powerfully armored you are, the number goes down, the number should go up because it adds a lot of these stupid math things for, let's just say you're a really powerful dragon and your armor class is negative 12. <laughs> you have to do all this stupid math. Right. And I think it just makes sense to make that number go up. That's a change I think is great. I think having characters be a bit more versatile more races and classes or interchangeable. I like the idea of being a bit more customizable with the characters. There were a lot of restrictions in the older systems of the game. Some of them I liked. 
I will admit, I actually like some of the restrictions and some of the things that prevent you from getting too powerful too quickly. I mentioned this a bit on the panel Hmm. because I think it forces you to be creative rather than giving you too much too quickly. Right. In the sense that, especially because I'm somebody who likes to play a wizard, I like to feel like I earned the power that I have. That I basically ran through the process of earning this stuff, earning these spells, and knowing that I had to be clever to get there. Right. I think maybe perhaps, because you want to make this a mainstream game, giving you a few less restrictions than second edition had. But I know the beautiful thing about this open game license that they currently have is that things like Pathfinder are opening this game up to people who are able to crowdsource the rules. And from what I understand, I'd say if I'm going to recommend a game system, just pick up the core rule book for Pathfinder rather than a Dungeons & Dragons game because a lot of people, especially fans of this mixed system that give you a lot of opportunities to do different things seem to point in the direction of Pathfinder. People love Pathfinder. Right. And then I think the last time Ryan and I, former panelist on the D&D show, talked about it, 3.5, which you may or may not be able to find a book, certainly not a new one. 3.5, I think, was a version of it where they had sort of taken a new way of character building and a new way of combat and the 0.5 was sort of a reconciliation for old players. So I think 3.5 might also be a mix between old and new. But it's a bit harder to find these things when they're older because they go out of print. Obviously, Dungeons & Dragons is not going to continue to print old editions of their rule books because they obviously want to sell new books and make new books. Not unlike Scientology. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you get OT level 5 dragon. So OT level 5, you mean you can create your own scenarios? So let's get into the mailbag with our new segment we call, appropriately enough, Radio Radio versus versus the the Mailbag. mailbag. We put a question to you guys, and of this question, our listener Adam Crocker had this to say, these are the questions that keep me awake at night. (laughs) So the question that we put to our listeners was this, are drivers legally obligated to pull to the shoulder of the road for the Ghostbusters Ecto-1? We had the opportunity to ask our panelists... Ryan Shaddock and Chris Walker, this very question, and here's what they had to say. So Ghostbusters is operating out of the New York area, since obviously we don't have federal and state laws for this. It's got to be some kind of municipal law if it is the case. And so, I mean, I would have to go back and see if in the movies they really are pulling to the side of the road and anybody's moving at all when they see that siren or if that siren appears to be legal. So I think that obviously it would be based on how accepted they are. And in the first movie, they're not an accepted part of the Manhattan law enforcement situation, if I remember. So I imagine between the first and second movies, maybe that gets implemented. You know, in the second one, they re- they're dealing with City Hall a lot more, I feel like. And maybe they have been legitimized. I think you hit the nail on the head there. In the first movie, they are not known. But I think that anybody who saw a lot of flashing lights and heard a loud klaxon of any kind coming up behind them would feel obligated to pull over to the side of the road but the question is are they legally required to do it and they they have not received any kind of mayoral uh, mandate at that point in the film and when the mayor does get behind them he sends a fleet of police cars and police motorcycles to drive ahead of ecto-1 to get them to their destination so clearly he didn't either didn't have the time to sign new legislation to uh, give them that force of the law behind them or i don't know what exactly but yeah clearly this is an issue that must be addressed Maybe it was a problem with the city council. <laughs> right, the holding up everything and, and just bogging things down with, with trying to tack writers onto the proposition and, quite frankly, wasting our time. <laughs> Again, we put this to you. We put this out on Facebook. We put it out on our website. We want to know what you think. So we got some answers to this question. 
So, Casey, what do our listeners have to say? Do drivers have to pull over for the Ecto-1? Well, listener Ronnie Schmidt says, of course you are, in the affirmative. According to the official website of the city of Roanoke, Virginia, when an emergency vehicle is approaching you, you have to, quote, pull over to the edge of the roadway, clear of intersections, and stop. Remain there until the emergency vehicle has passed. Watch for others. There may be several other emergency vehicles. Keep a foot on the brake so the brake light lets emergency vehicle drivers know that you're stopped. Stay at least 500 feet behind any moving emergency vehicle, displaying flashing warning lights and sounding a siren. Never race after an emergency vehicle for all of you would-be lawyers out there to get through the traffic light. (laughs) And never pass a moving emergency vehicle displaying flashing lights unless directed to do so by a police officer or emergency personnel. Now, I gotta say about this, that's Roanoke, Virginia. That's not New York City, not Manhattan. But I think there is a standard set of rules about pulling over to the side of the road for an emergency vehicle. And this is the question now. Does the Ecto-1 count as an emergency vehicle? I mean, they are responding to a client's emergency. Somebody has a haunting in their house and they want to get rid of it. But is this to be treated the same way as a fire, Mm. as a heart attack, the way that an ambulance would respond, the way that a fire truck would respond, or a police car would respond to, like, say, a shooting? Well, the thought just occurred to me when you're talking about it. With a shooting or a fire, there is a time constraint where if an emergency vehicle doesn't arrive soon enough, someone might die or or a house might be in jeopardy or a whole neighborhood might be in jeopardy. I think there is the idea that because houses can be haunted for decades, that having a ghost in your house, maybe a slimer eating all the food out of your fridge, is not an emergency akin to that the fact that your bathroom is on fire. That's true, but I imagine the police can also be called out to a noise disturbance or somebody being a pest in your neighborhood, playing their music too loud late at night, and Slimer is certainly a pest. Right. He is doing property damage to the inside of that hotel. <laughs> he's breaking glasses. He's scaring away customers. That's an emergency that a business would certainly want to get rid of. Right. The same way if there's some rambunctious kid outside of my restaurant breaking shit and throwing stuff around. So that question comes back to, well, I don't know, because you do not give flashing lights and sirens to the pest patrol. That's true. And these guys essentially are the exterminators for the undead. (laughs) So this question comes out, are they an emergency vehicle? And this is something that Robert Ray had something to say about. He says, technically, Ecto-1 is not an emergency vehicle sanctioned by either the local, state, or federal government until the end of the movie, and then even that is questionable. So the official answer for most of the movie is no. Mm. They are, in fact, in violation of several laws by running blue lights and sirens on New York City streets. Oh, there you go. That's right. Just because you're a rent-a-cop doesn't mean you can put the blue light on in your truck and drive down the road with it and expect people to pull over, right? Because then that's abusing the trust that people have in emergency vehicles. And there's a reason that tow trucks and security guards, which also have flashing lights, don't have blue lights. They Uh, have yellow lights. Right. It says this is something other than an emergency vehicle. This is something that's a maintenance vehicle. Right. But here's the question that I bring up, because I've actually been thinking about this and i say you're not legally obligated to pull over for the ecto-1 and here's why Hmm. the fact that they're driving down the street at full blast they've got the sirens and the lights on this plays into something that we see from the ghostbusters all throughout the movie which is these are not people who have a respect for oversight for (laughs) rules and laws that's true remember that when they go to the hotel what does venkman say to the rest of them that we have unlicensed nuclear accelerators on our back. (laughs) And they haven't had a visit from the EPA. Right. (laughs) Yet, they have this containment unit that Egon describes as if you turn it off, you are dropping a bomb on the city. (laughs) This is dangerous equipment. This is a very oddly libertarian attitude they have, which is that 
We're doing science. We don't give a shit about what you guys are doing because we're pushing forward with this technology that, frankly, doesn't have a government office to regulate right. because... Remember at the beginning of Ghostbusters 2, the judge doesn't even recognize the existence of ghosts, <laughs> despite the fact that there was this giant King Kong-sized thing going down the street. Right. So these guys don't have a respect for that. They're doing their job, they're making money, and they don't seem to have any interest in telling people what their unlicensed and most likely proprietary equipment <laughs> does or how it works or how it can affect the world around them. It's so funny. It doesn't, uh, doesn't the judge in Ghostbusters 2 say, if I could, I'd have you burned at the stake? Yeah, he's a very progressive judge. <laughs> yes. This is New York, of course. No, but it's great because there was legal precedent in North America, in the United States, about the same law that was passed and basically rendered moot by the Salem witch trials, is that spectral evidence could no longer be proffered to prove someone's guilt. The hilarious thing is spectral evidence is all they have to defend themselves. (laughs) They have nothing but, hey, I've got this PKE meter. I can't tell you how it works, but it finds ghosts. (laughs) And here's a jar of this pink goo, and I can get a response from it. And it may just be a Yuri Geller style scam or trick. Right. But it's hilarious because the spectral evidence law has essentially barred these guys from being able to defend themselves in a court of law. And this is funny because George Griminellis actually disagrees with me. He Hmm. says that maybe when the GBs are working for the city, but not when they're freelancing. Hmm. The fact is, is the Ecto-1 is a decommissioned ambulance that might get them some free maneuvers, though. So they look like an ambulance. And that may be enough to trick somebody into pulling over. You see this thing behind you. You go, oh, I better pull over. But if a cop sees it. So wait, the Ecto-1 is an old ambulance, but I always thought that there was a bit of a double entendre there because it almost looks like a hearse too at the same time. You know, it's got the big, I guess ambulances and hearses at a certain point in time of America looked very similar. Maybe there's some symbolism there. I'm not sure. Yeah, they weren't always a van. Yeah. And hearses look more like hearses because there's a tradition of hearses looking like that. Right. And you do notice that when the Ghostbusters get on site... They open up the back like a hearse and slide out their proton packs and are able to hook up from there. But again, it still has blue lights. It's still painted white and it looks like an emergency vehicle. Yeah. I'm assuming much like their proton packs, they drive through, assume people are just going to pull over for them and kind of go, yeah, fuck it. They're going to pull over. We'll get away with this until a cop sees it. Other listener, Michael Warbington, said, yes, you are obligated to pull over for the Ecto-1 under current New York state law, Article 26, Section 1144, quote, upon the immediate approach of an authorized emergency vehicle. Man, there's a lot of like literal verbatim (laughs) city codes being proffered by our listenership. We love it. Upon the immediate approach of an authorized emergency vehicle equipped with at least one lighted lamp exhibiting red light, and when audible signals are sounded from any said vehicle by siren, the driver of every other vehicle shall yield to the right of way, unquote. Under the same law, section 101, the description of an authorized emergency vehicle is fairly broad. Quote, every ambulance, police vehicle, or bicycle, correction vehicle, fire vehicle, civil defense emergency vehicle, emergency ambulance service vehicle, Blood delivery vehicle. There may be a little crossover there. There Are there vampires in the Ghostbusters universe? Why not? I'm sure there, there were in the there cartoon. There, yeah, sure. County emergency medical services vehicle, environmental emergency response vehicle, sanitation patrol vehicle, hazardous materials emergency vehicle, and ordinance disposal vehicle of the armed forces of the United States, end quote. The Ecto-1 would surely qualify as an environmental emergency response vehicle or even a hazardous materials emergency vehicle. The vehicle itself is a repurposed vintage ambulance. Again, this is the current law as found on the internet, no less. Not the law that may have been on the books in 1984. Interesting. 
Yeah. I didn't know that it extended beyond just fire truck and a police car. Well, that's the interesting thing is if you look at the idea of emergency vehicles, most ambulances are not commissioned by the state, no, not by the city. Private. They're private. It's a private company that's licensed. So I imagine right. that maybe the Ecto-1 and the Ghostbusters get a license with the city, certainly after they save the city from the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man. Right. <laughs> I always do have a problem with the beginning of Ghostbusters 2 that they get sued into bankruptcy because there's no way to fake the Stay Puffed Marshmallow no, Man. He no. stepped on cars. He stepped on a church. He climbed a building. And when he exploded, How many thousands he exploded of over everyone. of marshmallows were there left over after the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man? Oh, you that can imagine. cleaned up, you know. The government probably tested all of that stuff. <laughs> I mean, the Ghostbusters should be in the clear. You can't hold them responsible for that. There's no way they faked that. And I don't right. believe for a second. So I do have an issue with the beginning of Ghostbusters 2 because they should be all out and out heroes the way they are at the end of Ghostbusters 2. Sure. Even though they knocked over the Statue of Liberty. <laughs> so Kyle Hepworth actually agrees with me. He says, no, but surprisingly, you are legally obligated to pull over when a Sasquatch screams a mock siren from the window of an old red truck in the Seattle area. That's true. <laughs> Good old Harry. <laughs> Thanks, Kyle. And finally, Bethany Turner says, as the Ghostbusters are not a municipal emergency service, they will not have the recognition of the state needed for the other motorists to have to pull over and let them pass. However, in the rearview mirror, I imagine the Ghostbusters Ecto-1 looks enough like an ambulance that most mm. motorists would pull over anyway if the lights and sirens are blaring the way they do. I imagine that could land them in a lot of trouble with the authorities, however, because surely you need some sort of authorization to use lights and sirens that way. Yeah. No, I mean, I think she's right, Bethany, in that people would probably just instinctively turn over because if they're far enough behind you, they would. But how long would they be able to get away with it before the cops started pulling their asses over? Oh, yeah, especially that they're big celebrities. They're appearing on the covers of magazines yeah. and they're being interviewed on Larry King Live <laughs> the way they are in that big montage sequence. So these guys are a big deal. They are all over the TV, they've got commercials, and it's probably really expensive to buy airtime on television in New York, especially yeah. back then when radio and television was all there was. That yeah. was 1984. Right. And it was actually an interesting point that a couple of our friends, Dan and Bridget Lombardo, brought up when we asked them this question, which was, New Yorkers might actually have a very different response to those lights in their rearview mirror, which is, fuck you, asshole. Right. Get out of the way. They'd start to recognize this iconic car that is a local oddity and say, yeah, I'm not pulling over for that asshole. And in fact, in a world post 9-11 where <laughs> emergency first responders are really looked up to, right. pretending to be one might actually provoke violence from some people. That's they true. say, fuck this asshole. That guy just has some infestation of poltergeist in his house. You're not a real fireman. Right. I could imagine someone getting real pissed at that. Absolutely. I don't think my viewpoint on whether or not the question for me has shifted. I think the first thing that I said about it was that, no, they weren't. And mostly because New Yorkers are assholes and believe that everyone else are assholes. And I think you might have just validated my point for me, Mike. So with that, let's get into our next big question for oh, radio yes. versus a mailbag. And this is one that's of some contention between us. Yeah. This is one that started to blossom a little bit during the D&D panel episode. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to get it out in the open. Absolutely. So the question is this. What was the turning point that began the path of bringing geekdom into the mainstream? And I know this is something that we do disagree on. That right. clearly, when we look at the history of geekdom and nerd activities, nerd passions, things that nerds care about, you look at a movie like Revenge of the Nerds and it looks quaint. Right. Where these are right. characters, one of the things that makes them a nerd is that they know how to use a computer. Everybody uses a computer now. Sure. 
you look at the biggest jocks in the world, they still pull out their iPhone to know what the latest scores are. So nerds won. And not only that, like I said, jocks will unironically wear Captain America superhero garb. Mm. They love Star Trek just as much as anybody else. Yeah. They love Star Wars. They love superhero movies. Avengers is one of the biggest movies of all time. Yeah. All starring superheroes that really, aside from Spider-Man, was the biggest Marvel character before Avengers and Iron Man and Captain America and Thor all came out. It's mainstream. We won. If there was a culture war, we won. But the disagreement we have is when that turning point happened. Yes. When did that change happen? What made nerd to mainstream? And what do you think, Casey? It's really difficult. And I can only, of course, view this upon anecdotal evidence because you and I were both geeks and we both lived through eras of where you couldn't shine your little light outside. You had to keep it covered, right? You know what I'm saying? It's a bit like the Underground Railroad. <laughs> you go into darkened rooms and you speak in code. We talked about using geekdom as a cipher. cipher. right? I would say that... I would actually say that the turning point might have been Lord of the Rings movie with Peter Jackson, where there was a point where the nerdiest, the most closeted, and possibly the oldest sort of culture geekdom thing, which was a, a Tolkien fantasy, became the hottest of the hot shit in a trilogy of movies that went on to, didn't uh, Return of the King win Best Picture at the Oscars for and fuck's all sake? all three were nominated for Best Picture. Right. Of course, the Star Wars prequel trilogy were amazing and they made a lot of money. But in reality, I don't think you were seeing anything other than a mobilization of several different generations of Star Wars fans. I think that it might be Lord of the Rings. You know what? I don't think we disagree as much as I thought we initially did because I hmm. thought you were going to say Star Wars. Hmm. That Star Wars, I think, has always been this outlier. It came out in the late 70s and early 80s. But for some reason, Star Wars was always something that was an exception to the nerd rule. You could openly love Star Wars, and nobody had a problem with that. Nobody would pick on you. Nobody would lock you in your locker or pull your underwear strap over your head. Right. Because cool people liked Star Wars, too, not just the weirdos <laughs> like us. That wasn't it. And I look at something else, and I think Lord of the Rings is part of that era. We're talking about the late 90s, early 2000s. Right. The last Lord of the Rings movie came out in... 2004? 2003. Three, yeah. So we're talking early 2000s. And I remember, just like you said, nerds started coming out in full force, but they were actually outnumbered by non-nerds at midnight showings of yeah. a movie about hobbits and wizards. Yes, yeah. That is incredible. Where people loved Legolas, they love Frodo, they love Sam, they're invested in their story and they want to know how he's going to destroy the ring. I think it might have started a little earlier, though, which is... Sure. Things like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, hmm. things like the Harry Potter movies, which came a few years earlier. I could make the argument that Tim Burton's Batman also loosed up a bit of the idea of rooting for comic book heroes as real, meaty, real-world type of heroes in movies as well. But that's a bit early. I think a bit early because it was still nerddom. I was in probably fifth grade when the Batman 89 came out. It was still, through my high school years, uncool to be a nerd. Where I look at kids now, I was at work recently and I had a customer come in and I helped her find some stuff. And she was wearing a knit cap that was designed to look like a Dalek. <laughs> of course. That's something that never would have happened. Not yeah. only being nerdy, but wearing something like that outside of Comic-Con and it being totally cool. Right. And I love that. I love that these kids aren't having to put up with being treated like they're different or weird. That mm. they can embrace it and know that that's just a different way of being cool. I'm totally happy with that. Yeah, me too. So we want to hear from you. Please go to our website, radioversusthemartians.com. Catch us on Facebook. Message us on Twitter. Let us know what you think. Or you can drop us an email. Go to info at radioversusthemartians.com. We really want to hear from you folks. 
We want to know, when do you think the turning point came? When did that happen? And if you can say, what is the TV franchise? What is the movie? What is the book series that made people who weren't nerds become nerds? But you know what? There's one last thing that we have to do before we close out, and that's announce the next panel episode of Radio vs. the Martians for <laughs> next month. Oh, God. Oh, I'm, I'm having to prepare myself. I'm really having to bone up for this one. This one's a little weird because it's not a sci-fi franchise. It's not a game. It's not any one specific TV show or franchise. It's not one specific thing. It's an idea. And that's so bad, it's good. We're going to look at things that we enjoy ironically, things that we have repurposed into liking against the original idea and purpose of the people who made them, stuff that we love because it's bad, but also because we kind of embarrassingly enjoy it. (laughs) So we're going to dig into So Bad It's Good, and I think this is going to be a great panel. With that in mind, we look forward to seeing you again on the next panel episode of Radio vs. the Martians. Radio vs. the Martians is produced by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. Our editor was Mike Gillis. Our theme music was written and performed by Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com and send us your feedback at info at RadioVersusTheMartians.com. It's just occurred to me we really haven't had a completely successful test of this equipment. I blame myself. So do I. Well, no sense worrying about it now. Why worry? Each of us is wearing an unlicensed nuclear accelerator on his back.